Now back in Genesis chapter 4, you will remember the story of Cain and Abel. And as Abel's gone missing, and the Lord comes to Cain asking, have you seen your brother? Cain, Cain responds in a snarky way to the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm supposed to watch my brother now. I'm supposed to be a babysitter. Not the best way to answer the Lord when he calls you out. But Cain responds that way. Am I my brother's keeper? And the question is left out there to the Lord. But what we learn in our text today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is in some sense, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You are, you are to be considerate of, thoughtful about your brother and your sister in the faith, mindful of their faith, mindful of their consciences. We read in 1 John today, in 1 John chapter 4, in talk about loving God and who, who as a Christian wouldn't say they love God. And yet John challenges his audience by reminding them, well, you'll know you're loving God when you're loving your brother. Because those two things cannot be divorced. You can't say you love God who you don't see while you despise your brother who you do see. Jesus made the point in, the, in Matthew's gospel, as it's recorded for us, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, when he comes to them and says, you know, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, well done, enter into glory, for you saw me naked, you saw me hungry, you saw me in prison, you know, you, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me. And they say, Lord, when did we do these things? And he says, inasmuch as you did it to them, you did it to me. Inasmuch as you did it to them, you did it to me. And you hear it again in the Lord's coming to Saul at the point of his conversion to become Paul when he knocks him to the ground in the brightness of his glory, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Saul and saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me, Jesus says. You're persecuting me. By, by the stoning of Stephen, you stoned me. By persecuting the least of these, my brethren, you are persecuting me. In blessing the least of these, my brethren, you are blessing me. You cannot say you love God, but despise your brother. If you love God, you will love your brother and sister. If you're going to serve God, you will serve God by serving your brother and sister. This is the link that is there for us by the scriptures that we've read today. And Paul brings us to this point in his letter, these unique angles or arguments, issues that he is taking up in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> um, and we have, we have him come to this issue in 1 Corinthians 8. You see the title on the head of the text there is be sensitive to conscience. And Paul is wrestling with an issue that we see elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly in Romans. In Romans chapter 14, we'll read that text when we get to 1 Corinthians 10. But this is brought up elsewhere. And the issue that is, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit last week, but the issue that is, is Paul's dealing with here is an issue that is there for new believers as they're coming into the faith in Corinth and are wrestling in their conscience with 
what it means to separate from the world. You know, maybe you, maybe you were a, a convert later in life um, and wrestled with, wait, what does it mean? What things can I still do now that I'm a Christian? And what kind of things do I have to give up? Right. And that, and that's not easy to decipher, especially as a, as a new believer. And the Corinthians are basically all new believers. You know, what, what things do I have to, can I still listen to the music I was listening to? Can I still go to that bar on a Friday evening? Can I attend that dance? Can I go to that concert? Can I hang with these friends? Can I, what can I do? What has to change now? And as the gospel comes into Corinth, as it came in perhaps into your life, uh, these questions are provoked. And, and that's really what we've been seeing all the way through. This is, a, this is a relatively new church grappling with what Christianity looks like on the ground. Do we marry? Don't we marry? Do I stay single? Do I have to divorce because I'm married to a non-believer? You know, how do I handle these things? How do I handle these teachers? How do I handle <clears throat> all these sorts of issues? The issue that is before us today is the issue of food. Because the food, the meat market, particularly in these cities, the where the people would buy their meat is primarily from temple sacrifices. Temples were sacrificing to the pagan gods, and there was a lot of meat, relatively cheap. And the meat market was basically filled with meat from pagan sacrifices, meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And oftentimes that meat was served at the temple where the temples served as sort of your ancient restaurants, if you can think about it that way, where people might gather or hold an event, or certainly the temples were holding events. And these would be community events, events that the Corinthian people had grown up going to. Because it's what you do. It's where the party is. It's where the celebration is. It's where the feast is today. It's where the meat is being sold or where it's being served. It's where we gather when we have a big event, perhaps a family event, perhaps a a, a, a business event. You know, they had in, in those days the, the, the trade guilds, you know, not unions where you're all working for a company, but a guild where all the the leather workers or all the silversmiths, you know, they they kind of managed the business together. They kept everybody on a level playing field in terms of price and so forth. And and there were certain requirements you had to be part of that guild. And oftentimes part of that had to do with the local pagan temples as well. And so these temples became the center of social life. And Paul is wrestling with this issue, or they are wrestling with it as they write to him, like, what do we can we still go there? Can we still eat there? Can we still buy meat from there? And there's tension. Just as there was tension with marriage, there's tension in the church over this issue. Now, again, here's where when we read the scriptures, the scriptures are not written because, you know, God thought that forever we would have this, this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And so it's very important for the church in 2022 to have words on how to handle meat sacrificed to idols. Right? The scriptures are written to give you the trajectory of how you wrestle with similar questions. You see the spirit-inspired trajectory of obedience, what obedience looks like, the wisdom of the apostles on this issue that we might then apply them out 
to a fine. It's not the exact same thing, meat sacrificed to idols. But what are the issues? When, when, how do we handle when we're around a new believer whose conscience is convicted on something where ours is not? How do we handle this? Because there were some in Corinth who believed that, hey, we're free. We're in Christ. We don't believe that those temples are anything. They're basically just empty buildings. Those ridiculous sacrifices they're doing are sacrifices to thin air because these gods do not exist. And therefore, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we eat the food or don't eat the food. It's meat like any other meat. And the building is just a hollow building. Let them think whatever they want. That's not what I think. I'm just coming here for the food. I'm just coming here to buy the meat. You had a group that was there like that. And Paul is not unsympathetic to them. You, you hear it in this text. Yeah, we know. We know there, there are no other gods. Sure, there are many, quote, gods, he says. Sure, there are many temples. You see them all over Corinth. But we know that there is only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we know that. Paul's not unsympathetic to that. Paul's actually going to tell them, you know what, whether you eat or don't eat. He says that. You're not better if you do, worse if you don't. It's meat. Point granted. But there are others in the body who hold a different view. There are some within the body who believe that, no, fine, we don't believe in those gods, but, but I can't participate in that. Those temples aren't empty temples. They're temples of idolatry. They're worshiping a false god, and I can't have anything to do with that. I, I came out of that. That was the life I once lived. And I don't want to get anywhere near that. For me to get near that, I believe, is, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on the, the stink of that system. I, I can't do it. I'm participating in it. I'm supporting it, perhaps. Maybe in, even in, in buying it. I'm giving money so that they can get more. You know, they can do more sacrifices to gods that are not true gods. Or in eating it, I am now taking that which was uh, you know, blessed unto an idol. I'm taking into myself. I'm a participant in this. And Paul's not insensitive to that either. Because where a person's conscience is convicted, Paul takes that as being from the Spirit. Where our consciences are convicted, we need to listen to them. We need to submit to them. It's a dangerous thing to silence one's own conscience. To do that which our conscience is screaming, don't do, don't do. And for one reason or another, this group of people over here have consciences that are screaming at them saying, don't participate in this. And then over here, you've got people whose consciences are not screaming at them, but whose consciences are telling them, no, you're free. You're free. And Paul does not come down directly and say, here is the right answer. You must not eat at, at pagan temples or you must not eat meat sacrificed to idols. He doesn't come out and say that. At the same time, he doesn't turn to the group over here and say, no, it's fine. Get over it. Suck it up. All right. You should be in there as well. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us a complicated, nuanced vision of what it means to be the body of Christ. Where we, even in this little room, have all different kinds of things working on our consciences. Some of you 
are very conscientious about things, particular things, that others in this room couldn't care two bits about. It, it just, it's not on your conscience radar. And that's probably true for all of us. We all have something here and there that is very important to us and that we just feel in good conscience we cannot do. Whereas there are others within the congregation who don't share that. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. We are different and the Lord has us all in different places in our walk with him and in our relationship with him. And we, so how do we live together? How do we work together? How do I love God by loving you? When your quirks, when your conscience maybe starts to contradict and clash with mine, how do we handle this? Well, Paul begins here with a couple, he sets the tone right off the bat with a couple strong statements. And we need to address, we need to look at these and, 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 uh, I'll reflect on them for a moment, and then we can jump into how Paul, you know, the the warnings and stipulations that Paul is going to give us. Now, concerning things offered to idols, he writes in verse one. We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up; love edifies. We know we all have knowledge, and here I have to believe he's writing to those who are writing and saying, "Hey, we can do this, right?" I, we know the, 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 there's no gods. We know that this meat is just meat. And Paul says, I know, we all have knowledge. But remember, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge gives us pride. Knowledge can be used and wielded in such a way that it harms our brother. Right? Knowledge, and this is something where, again, we have to be very careful, I think, not only as Christians, but as American Christians. Because not only do we have knowledge of stuff, we have things called rights. Right? And rights get used this way as well. You know, I have a right. And rights can get wielded in such a way like, hey, you don't tell me, you don't step in here. It's sort of baked in. And, I, and again, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that rights are bad or defending rights are bad. But what I am saying is that they can create a self-centered focus because rights are about me. Now, granted, I want to protect other people's rights as well, but what I'm protecting in them is their right to do their thing, to think about themselves. Rights are good but dangerous. Right? As, as Christians, we can, we can see the value in having legal rights, but at the same time, we must observe the dangers that rights can be things that we wield in such a way that we can, if nothing else, build up self-pride puffs up. It's about me. I become the center of things. Knowledge and rights. And Paul warns about this. And he holds on the other side of the scale love. Not that you either have knowledge or you have love, but Paul is Paul is saying to these who are claiming, hey, here he, they're listing out all their arguments for why we can do this thing. Paul said, those are great arguments. Well done. But there is love, you know. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Love edifies. Love turns outward. Love takes rights and sets them behind. Love doesn't forget about them. 
Love doesn't forget about knowledge of what we know to be true. It's just the difference between love and knowledge, or in this case, even as I say, love and rights-mindedness, is just where our orientation is. Where's our focus? Where are we looking? Rights language looks in at what is what is mine. And again, I'm not saying there's no place for that. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not slamming the system. We're talking about the dangers here. Love looks out. Love looks, love thinks responsibility. Knowledge thinks rights. Rights are mine. Responsibility is yours. What am I, how, how is this affecting you? How can this bless you? Or how is this cursing you? How is this hurting you? So he draws this challenge between love. I, sure, I know we all have knowledge. They're really great arguments. But what knowledge tends to do is center us on ourselves, whereas love tends to edify. It, it looks out. And Paul here is challenging us in this to let your governing motivation be love. Even in your food, in the decisions you make socially and culturally, let us be motivated by love over knowledge. Let us be motivated by the other over our self. And then he comes in verse 2 and he challenges the knowledge to begin with. And if anyone thinks he knows, I know we all have knowledge. Those are really great arguments. But if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You know, Socrates was considered the the wisest man in the, in the Greek world. And the reason why he was considered the wisest man is because he knew he was not the wisest man. If you read any of Plato, Socrates is a man who is perpetually asking questions. All the, all the Platonic dialogues, which are basically a record, Plato's record of Socrates, is, is Socrates asking questions. And, and he's not being a smart butt. <laughs> He's, he's asking questions because he is in a dialogue with somebody trying to work toward the truth, seeing what he perceives as error, but then asking the questions to navigate the way through that, to discern the error in their thinking so that we can both learn from it, and even his, if it's there, to work through it so that we might come to some conclusion. But Socrates was a man who asked questions because he did not claim to know anything, and yet he knew much. But if anyone claims to know anything, you know nothing, as you ought to know. Beware of your knowledge. And this is something we all need, especially in our political climate. We all need. We all think we see clearly, whether socially, culturally, economically, personally. It's a danger for all of us. We all think we've got 20-20 vision. But Paul is warning us, careful. That thing, that kind of confidence puffs up and, and can make us unloving people. So here, let this be a motto you have. If I think I know anything, I do not know as I ought to know. None of us are omniscient. And there are always angles on things. There are always stories there's always a side of something I haven't really wrestled with. and haven't, It doesn't mean that I literally have no knowledge, but it means there's a danger in pride of knowledge. And Paul is warning the Corinthians to, to question themselves, show some humility. I know you think you know what you should do, but you don't know as you ought to know. 
And then verse 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. That's what's most important. Not what you know, but who you're known by. Right? What's really important is that you are in relationship with the triune God. That you love him and are loved and known by him. That's really what matters. That he knows you. And so that's what you want to cultivate above everything else is the relationship with God so that not here's all the stuff I know, but I know he knows me. As opposed to the horrific words that Jesus utters that he says will be said on that day. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't care how much you know. I don't know you. And so, again, this union here that John's going to give us in 1 John 4 about loving God that we might be known, that we might know him and he might know us is going to be manifested in our loving our brother. Not in how much we know. Not in the great arguments you can make for these things. Not that there's not a place for argument. Not that there's not a place for making your case. But even that must be governed by love. That's what's most important. That he knows you. So Paul goes on now. Now he jumps into the argument. Therefore. So with that being said. Let that be the context now. In which we come to tackle this question. Therefore now. Concerning the, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. We know. No. Knowledge. We have knowledge. An idol is nothing in the world that there's no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, and there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God. And here here in in verse 6, we get uh, Deuteronomy 6. But Paul does some, some, he cracks the the egg of of, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, Hero is the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And he he opens it up for us, or he shines light through a prism. And he takes the one God of Deuteronomy 6 and all of a sudden, it, it, it becomes triune, or at least it, it, we have the, 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 uh, uh, the Father and the Son here being acknowledged as God. So the, the one God, here is the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul breaks into two. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of us, of all things, and we are for him, and one Lord. Whereas Deuteronomy put those two, here is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul takes that and, again, as I say, kind of cracks it open for us. Yes, there is one God and one Lord. He takes the two titles and distinguishes them as two persons who are one God. So there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. So Paul here reminds us of your chief end. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you exist. You do not exist to fill your belly. You do not exist to eat. You exist for him. And therefore, again, this has to color every decision we make. There's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, however, so remember, that's all on the knowledge part. We know this. We know that there is only one God. And so, yes, these temples are nothing. They're empty shells. The sacrifices are nothing. We know that. However, verse 7, 
There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciences of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their consciences being weak are defiled. Okay, so I get it, guys. I get it. We know this. And he's not denying it. That's true. He affirms it. But you have brothers and sisters who are convicted about this and who in their conscience believe they're sinning if they eat of that food. Now, again, what makes this so tricky is that in with excluding their conscience, which I know you can't, objectively they're not sinning because the meat is not sinful meat. Paul will make that case. It's not. But where they're sinning is in violating their conscience. Your, your conscience is, in theology, we call it immediate general revelation. That is, it's, it's unmediated revelation of God. It's just, it is, if you will, the Spirit of God urging you, guiding you. You have to be careful with it. But at the same time, when you feel that conviction, you ought to be slow before you, before you ignore it, kick it to the curb. For these people, their consciences being weak, they are defiled. But food does not commend us to God, neither if we eat are we the better, nor are we if we, uh, if we do not eat the worse. But beware. So here's the issue. Here, here Paul gets down to brass tacks of what the significance is. But beware, lest somehow this liberty, these rights, this knowledge of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. What do you mean, Paul? Well, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in a temple's in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, the weak brother perishes for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Again, and you can hear uh, Jesus saying to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And then Paul, and then Paul makes this amazing statement in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Like, at the end of the day, I'll give up the meat. Even though... He's saying, you're at liberty to have it. You have a right to it. It's not sin to eat it. You're free to go do it, and you know you can do it. But if eating it wounds my brother, how does it wound them? Not merely by offending them. He's not. This is not like an offense culture, like, oh, no, they're offended, or they don't like the fact that you do it. This is a very particular thing, leading a brother into sin leading a brother or sister to violate their conscience. If my, if the, the exercise of my rights, if the exercise of my knowledge, if the exercise of my liberty, because that's the word he uses here, and the doctrine we use for this is that of Christian liberty, that as Christians, we are free to make decisions on things the Bible does not command or prohibit. We're free to make decisions about whether we do it or not. 
The Bible does not say specifically whether you can eat meat that was once sacrificed to an L. The Bible is not a big law book that you look up every little issue and under this, code this, section that, subsection B, you find out whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't work that way. God has given you his spirit and we are to act in ways that glorify him. Whether you eat or drink, he's about to say in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So you're going to go eat this meat. The question you have is, can I glorify God in eating this? If you don't think you can, don't eat it. If you think you can, go ahead and eat it. You're free. Can you drink a beer? Should you drink alcohol? I don't know. Do you think you can drink alcohol? There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not drink alcohol. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou must drink alcohol. So you've got to be big boys and girls. You've been gifted with the Holy Spirit. Make a decision. And if you believe you cannot, if your conscience is convicting you and you don't think you should drink alcohol, don't drink it. And if you think you can, drink it. Right? These are the decisions. Should, should I watch this movie? Should I watch this series on Netflix? I don't know. It's got a sex scene in it. It uses the F word. Okay. There's nothing. Now, you could find principles in the Bible. You might say, set your mind on things good, true, and beautiful, and that, and so forth. But there's nothing in there saying, thou shalt not watch Netflix. Okay, so I have a decision to make. Do I think I can watch this to the glory of God or no? If your conscience convicts you, like, I don't think I should be watching this, shut it off. If you think you can watch it and glorify God, do it. This is the liberty that you have as a believer. God gives us his spirit, and then he tells us to live in ways that glorify him, eating and drinking and living. Aha. But you must add into your calculus in that decision. Can I do this to the glory of God? Will this cause me to sin? Will Can I glorify God in this? I, 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 me, 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 which is an important question. I have to ask that question right at the outset. Do I think I can do this to the glory of God? Yes or no? But add into the calculus, Paul is saying. What effect will this have on my brother or sister? Because if in doing this, I destroy my brother or sister, then as free as I am to do it, I cannot glorify God in it. Even though I don't think it's having a direct effect upon me and my conscience, if my freedom results in the destruction of a brother, the hurting of a brother, the guiding of a brother or sister into sin, meaning into the violation of their conscience, then I cannot glorify God in this and I ought not do it. And Paul says, and now think about think about how radically countercultural this is. I don't know for the Greeks. I can just think in this case as Americans. That we would forsake our rights. That we would forsake our knowledge. That we would forsake our liberty for the sake of my brother or my sister and the effect that the exercise of my liberty might have on them. Now again, we're talking about, we're talking about Christian liberty. Not that there's not an application to our civil liberties. But here we're talking about our spiritual liberties, our liberty in Christ to make decisions about how to glorify God in particular situations. But Paul gives us a countercultural instruction based on love such that he is willing to say, if I knew that my eating meat would cause my brother to sin, I'd forsake the meat and keep the brother. Forsake the meat keep the brother. The meat's not worth it. 
That's love. That, that's an amazing expression of self-denying love. It's the very, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's having this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord, who emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. A bondservant. He served us. And, and Paul is challenging the Corinthians. You're coming at it. It's not, okay, it's not this issue. Okay, let me, let me give you a treatise on whether you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. No, let me get to the issue beneath it. Do you view yourself as a servant of your brother? Are you governed by what will make your sister fall into sin? Is that what's governing you? Because if that's governing you, it just changes the whole thing. Our arguments kind of change. So what does this look like for us? Again, perhaps in Sunday school we can think of some particular cases, but where maybe you have some instances of this. It's hard to say. But one thing it requires is us to know our brothers and sisters. right? To know the things where their, their consciences are weak. Now, for Paul, the, the meat sacrificed to idols was kind of a hot button. It was a, you know, it was like one of those things that, you know, I tell my students there was a time when like reading Harry Potter was like this. It was, it was a funny little thing, but it wasn't funny. There were Christians who believed, of course, read Harry Potter. It's, it's, it's just great. It's just good literature. And she's, J.K. Rowling's an amazing writer and the stories are terrific. Then you had other Christians who were like, no, but it's about sorcery. It's about spells, and 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 we should just, no Christians are to flee from that kind of stuff, and there are some Christians that had come out of that. I'm like, well, what do we do? What do you mean? I just heard a Christian pastor say something about about Harry Potter. I used to be in the Wiccan thing. Somebody says, you know, I can't even believe you bring that up. What do you, you know? And for a while, like Harry Potter, I'm just giving you an example. It was like a thing where you you just needed to know that's going to be a dicey. That's people were hot on either side of that issue for a while, and that's kind of what meat sacrifice to idols was for Paul. This is one that you can know when you're going to make a decision to go into that temple and get that food. You can pretty well be assured that there are going to be Christians walking by, seeing Spanger just walk into that temple. You can pretty much guarantee that's going to happen. So you better think about this. You stand, I stand up here in a pulpit back in, you know, 10 years ago and use an illustration from Harry Potter. I could almost predict somebody's going to be offended. You know it because it was just a cultural hot button object within the kingdom. Or be like being in the, you know, the 70s and, and using, you know, me quoting, you know, I quote Bob Dylan, you know, but, 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 Quoting him back in the in the eighties or seventies might have offended people. It might still offend you. You know, like I just never told you, but it offends me when you say that. Okay, tell me. I need to love you. No, yeah, okay, Mark, put your hand down. Um, all right. So, but we've got to think. We've got to think as the people of God. What does this look like for us? How and really forget the issue. Where's the orientation? Is it toward what my rights are? Or am I oriented toward what loving my brother looks like? That's what Paul's challenging us. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a church governed by love. We claim to love you. 
may it be so obvious to anyone who comes in here because they see the way we love one another, the way we care for one another, the way we forgive one another, the way we exhibit patience toward one another. Father, may all these things be living witnesses of our love for you. And at the same time, Lord, we confess that we are self-centered people. We have our knowledge. We know our rights. And we ask that you would guard that. As important as knowledge is, and as valuable as rights are, Father, guard us from the dangers of self-centeredness. Give us eyes, loving eyes, that can see the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters where, where their spirits are convicted. And may we love them by guarding the exhibitions of our liberty. We need wisdom for this, Father. We want to be a vibrant family, a vibrant body of yours here at Affirmation. Give us love for one another to that end, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.